Hello and welcome to the Talk Neuro to Me podcast. Today we'll be interviewing Dr. Jonathan Chung and we'll be discussing upper cervical chiropractic and functional neurology. If you'd like to learn more about applying clinical neuroscience to your model of practice, visit careinstitute.com. Hello, this is Dr. Jessica Lofgren and Dr. Freddie Garcia, and today we are joined on the Talk Neuro to Me podcast by Dr. Jonathan Chung. Dr. Chung is a board-certified doctor of chiropractic based out of West Palm Beach, Florida. He graduated magna cum laude from the University of Central Florida with a bachelor's in microbiology and molecular biology, and he received his doctorate of chiropractic from Life University. He is a member of the National Upper Cervical Chiropractic Association, the International Chiropractors Association's Upper Cervical Council, and a board member of the Upper Cervical Research Foundation. He has published in multiple peer-reviewed journals and has been a featured speaker for topics involving sports-related concussion, upper cervical imaging, and dysautonomia. Dr. Chung, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on the show, Dr. Lachman and Dr. Garcia. Dr. Chung, I'm excited to have you on um, because I love bringing people on uh, the Carrick Podcast show, Talk Neuro to Me, to learn about the things that I don't know enough about. And you are an upper cervical specialist. And so I'm like going, all right, let's bring in this guy. He's really, really good to hear nothing but amazing things about you. Um, I want to learn more about upper cervical chiropractic, uh, why it matters. And then I've also heard that you kind of have a novel approach to the way you're working with your patients anyways. So I want to see what you're doing that's different. How's that sound? That sounds great. I'm excited to be on the show. I love what you guys are doing here with the Talk Narrow podcast. Oh, hey, thank you. Hey, we're, thank we're, you. <laughs> we're, we're, we're enjoying it. It's pretty neat. we got a, a long list of really awesome people to talk to. So uh, it, ain't, it ain't a bad gig, let me tell you. It's a pretty good day here. <laughs> All right, hey, so let's get, let's get into this. I, w- I want to learn just a little bit more about you. So I want to ask you, what got you into this? And, and not just chiropractic. I'd love to hear how that happened. But specifically, how would you get into upper cervical? Um, upper cervical chiropractic is like a like a, I don't even know how to describe it, like a small subsection of chiropractic, right? It's a, it's a way that people um, look at their patients. Um, but how did you arrive there? So that's a really interesting question because I was in chiropractic school and I was um, full on board with chiropractic as a whole. But, um, you know, just reading about chiropractic's history and the way that Um, chiropractic kind of had some strong roots in upper cervical. I did a little bit of exploring in my later parts of school and I decided to shadow a upper cervical chiropractor up in New York and I just really fell in love with the types of patients that he was able to help. So I was able to see patients where, you know, they would walk in and patients with Parkinson's disease, they would walk out of getting a checkup at their chiropractor and they'd be walking out a little bit faster. Um, patients with like decades of chronic pain were just singing the praises and were in tears from just, you know, feeling a sense of relief for the first time. And I was like, this is why I want to do what we do and what we have this tremendous privilege and opportunity to do to help people, um, especially some of the people that have kind of lost hope um, from conventional medical approaches and um, just their standard way of doing things. So it was a completely different way of looking at things that really attracted me to that style of practice. Okay. So for 
So we attract a really wide audience of people. We have medical doctors, physical therapists, osteopaths, chiropractors, and now we have um, other professions, uh, you know, listening to the show and coming to the Carrick Institute. We have acupuncturists, massage therapists, athletic trainers. Can you explain to us what chiropractic is to you and where upper cervical kind of fits into that whole concept of chiropractic? So the thing that really draws to me about chiropractic is it really acknowledges that you have so many mechanisms inside of your body that are really designed to help promote healing and recovery in of itself. And the thing that's unique about upper cervical chiropractic from um, a historical perspective is that you could get so much accomplished just from understanding the biomechanics and the neurology of the upper cervical spine Whereas you take a really precision approach to taking care of this area, we compare things towards like some people have a shotgun approach where they want to throw everything at a patient all at once. And then some people have a sniper approach where they just want to go in and fix one little small part of the human um, experience. And that approach of taking like a sniper's approach to identifying this one problem that can maximally improve a multitude of uh, the human experience is something that I found really attractive. And that's what drew me to, um, it's called the NUCA approach. So NUCA standing for National Upper Cervical Chiropractic Association. Um, we're a branch of chiropractic uh, that looks at and tries to achieve something called an orthogonal alignment of the head and neck. So orthogonal meaning 90 degrees. So we like to have the head sitting on top of the cranial cervical junction, that top part of the neck at a 90 degree angle. And the closer that we get people to that angle biomechanically, the more that we see people have improved neurological integrity, better range of motion, and just a better overall functionality um, of that region of the body. Got it. So NUCA, again, what does that stand for? NUCA? Stands for the National Upper Cervical Chiropractic Association. And the NUCA technique is the technique that we use through that organization. Yeah, so for NUCA, is it you said technique is it like a protocol that you follow or is it like a more like a paradigm meaning like you, you said so you said 90 percent in regards to that position is it like you know by all means necessary you get it to the 90 percent or do they have like a protocol that kind of teach you it and another question i'll ask a twofold question is was this in a did you have to go to take extra courses for this like was this within chiropractic school while you were studying or was this like kind of an after thing that you had to go in addition to so NUCA is a protocol, and the protocol starts with um, looking at the biomechanics of the upper part of the neck, and basically it involves doing you know some soft checks like doing palpation of the cervical spine, looking at range of motion, looking at a supine leg length inequality, and corresponding that with um, specific uh, X-rays of the upper cervical spine. So we take a view called anasium, which is a frontal view on the head and neck. We take a vertex, which is uh, kind of an axial view of the head and neck, and then we have um, the lateral view. And then we use pre and post x-rays to measure what were we able to accomplish. So the post x-ray is kind of our check to see if the correction or adjustment that we delivered for that person was effective in restoring biomechanical integrity. And um, while our goal is always to shoot for 90 degree orthogonal alignment with patients that's not 
necessarily what we are able to achieve with every single patient because every single patient is different. Some people have malformations of their cervical spine that limit that. Other people just have really challenging biomechanics where you might not be able to get it based on your skill set, but the goal is always to use the techniques involved with NUCA to try to achieve that as close as we can. Um, as far as our training goes, most schools don't teach it. I do know that there are about two or three chiropractic schools that do offer it to teach it, but a lot of it is just through um, postgraduate training, so attending um, the seminars twice per year. Um, most doctors who go on to practice NUCA usually spend a year or two training with another NUCA practitioner to learn and master and develop their skills in that technique. Great. So now you've talked about the upper cervical biomechanics as well as the cranial cervical junction a few times already. Um, what is the big deal with the upper cervical junction and how does that relate to the neurobiomechanics of the spine? So the thing that's pretty unique about the cranial cervical junction compared to the rest of the spine is that the cranial cervical junction is an area of the body that is inherently less stable than other parts of the spine. So other parts of the spine have thick disc material and the alignment of their facets kind of limit that intersegmental range of motion. Mm -hmm. But the cranial cervical junction, there is no cervical disc once you get past C3. And then um, the cranial cervical junction where the atlas meets the occiput, it's really just held together by facet joints, ligaments, and your suboccipital muscles. So that area allows us to be able to turn our heads side to side. It gives us a large degree of range of motion that is specific to the neck because what human beings need is we need to be able to be aware of all of our surroundings. So we need to be able to turn our heads so we could spot a saber-toothed tiger that's you know 90 degrees to our right or left and be able to spot that danger so we could you know fight or flight appropriately. Um, because we have this increased mobility upper cervical spine, it also means that it's going to be more prone to injury. So things like contact to the head that we see in whiplash and concussion or um, large strains are, can easily injure that upper cervical spine and create problems. So that's one of the reasons why it's kind of uniquely situated to have a large neurological impact in addition to a large biomechanical impact, um, especially in the world we live in where, you know, getting contact injuries from playing sports or being in a car accident or just taking falls can expose that area to injury. You know, as you, as you described the upper cervical spine, I'm, I, I can't but think of uh, a coach yelling at somebody saying, keep your head on a swivel, you know. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I don't worry about saber-toothed tigers. That's why I hang out with Dr. Lofgren, who works out a lot. So I, I inherently feel safe all the time. It's, it's pretty great. Yeah, she's strong. She, you got a good person to hang out with. <laughs> I'm pretty lucky guy. So let's talk about neurology of the upper cervical spine. You said there are some conditions that you um, find uh, can cause some pathobiomechanics of the cervical spine. What are the conditions that you're like, man, if, if somebody had this, they should really pay attention to that area? So a big part of what we see in our practice a lot is we do see a lot of people with sports-related concussion, and that's where um, I've established kind of a niche in my community as far as seeing those types of patients. So especially with um, a big increase in research that's been focused on the cervical spine and the concussion literature, people have started to recognize that there's a cervicogenic post-concussion type syndrome 
or seborrheogenic post-concussion persistent symptoms that is some a place where uh, chiropractors and especially upper cervical chiropractors can uh, make a big impact on that person's recovery. We also see a lot of whiplash type patients, um, but we are also known for, um, because of the uh, unique neurology of the upper cervical spine, we work with a lot of craniofacial pain. So people with uh, TMJ disorders, people with trigeminal neuralgia, migraine headaches, and uh, chronic daily headaches are all things that uh, we have a lot of confidence in seeing when they present to our office. So can you talk a little bit more and touch base on the actual neurology that goes with the upper cervical spine? Because I know that you've talked about a lot with us all of these great treatments that happen and these results that you see with the upper cervical spine. But what neurological structures do we see up there that's causing these changes to happen or that we think are causing these changes to happen? So one of the cool things about the upper cervical spine is that it's loaded with these mechanical receptors, especially from the uh, joint position sensors that are coming from the facet capsule and especially from those suboccipital muscles. So that provides an enormous amount of feedback into the cerebellum, uh, the brainstem, the vestibular nucleus, and it helps to give the brain an idea of where the head is in space in combination with things like your vestibular system and your visual system. So these three systems really work together to help the brain figure out where is my head in space and where do I have to move next. So just the large density of those receptors, disruption of those receptors from an injury can lead people towards having things like cervicogenic types of dizziness. It could lead to cervicogenic types of headache. And some of the connections because of its relationship to things like the um, <clears throat> nucleus intermedius, um, can really have an effect on the autonomic nervous system. And additionally, the trigeminal cervical nucleus um, can play a big role in headaches and also have some secondary impacts on the autonomic nervous system as well. So just the density of these position sensors and nociceptors in that area of the spine can have a big impact on the brain as a whole. Okay, so it sounds like to me because there is – so much feedback entering our nervous system from that area. And it, and it makes a lot of sense that we do have a lot of feedback from there because of the range of motion, the, how, uh, the value of us being able to see our environment. I'm, I'm assuming, uh, and, and I, don't, I don't think this would be a bad assumption, but it's still an assumption that our nervous system would value its capability to see around us very well, highly, right? Like it's like, um, so I think that I, I, could, I could extrapolate that out. That makes a lot of sense. What about the literature? What does the literature say in regards to the upper cervical spine and like various conditions? I mean, I'm sure this is kind of at least research to some degree. What are you finding out there? Um, the, the whiplash literature is loaded with studies that talk about how the upper... Oh, sorry about that. So. Is, is that Olivia? <laughs> that is Olivia. Oh, tell her we all said hello. Absolutely. She wanted she wanted a little bit of daddy time right then. She, you can tell her she made it onto the show. She's famous. <laughs> so, yeah. So, you have a couple of studies that um, link the upper cervical spine to uh, certainly things like cervicogenic headache. You have studies linking it um, to uh, post-concussion issues. 
but the vast majority of the literature that's really supportive of the upper cervical spine's input into the nervous system is a lot, a lot of it has to do with the studies involving whiplash. So some of these studies can include a study by Freeman and Rosa in 2010. Um, they talked about how whiplash injuries and the arrangement of some of the upper cervical spine can affect things like uh, cerebellar tonsillar herniation, which is commonly seen in things like Chiari malformation. Um, you have some of these research that talk about the upper cervical facet joints and the capsular ligaments and how it can lead to chronic neck pain. Um, and then there's also studies that look at some of the suboccipital muscles where uh, either a atrophy of the rectus capitis posterior minor or hypertrophy of the rectus capitis posterior major can lead to chronic headache syndromes and predict worse outcomes with TBI. So there is a lot of stuff that's going on, especially with new attention that people have paid to the upper cervical spine when it comes to concussion. So more stuff is getting out there to talk about the neurology of the cervical spine in relationship to a person's recovery. And what, what is the latest research showing? Because, you know, we did a little, we did a little searching ourselves and we're seeing uh, some connections with like Meniere's type dizziness. I guess there was a paper in 2016. Um, and just kind of a bunch of papers, actually, a lot with dizziness. Are you, are you working with any dizziness patients, Dr. Chung? Yeah, that's actually one of the things that I've started to see quite a bit of, especially in the past two years. So there was a study by Michael Bergon, who worked with 300 Meniere's patients in his clinic, and he's developed a pretty strong reputation in some of the Meniere's community re recently, where um, by doing upper cervical chiropractic techniques with Meniere's patients, he's been able to see you know, upwards of 80 to 90% reporting some type of improvement in their Meniere's type symptoms which is something that we're starting to see a lot of down here, even though Meniere's is a relatively rare condition. Um, also in the cervicogenic dizziness world, um, some of these physical therapy techniques like the uh, self-sustained apophyseal glide and Maitland techniques are starting to show a lot of um, good outcomes with cervicogenic dizziness. And uh, a recent paper done by Mustafa and Harrison from the chiropractic biophysics community shows that improving cervical biomechanics by improving cervical curve is also helpful in getting long-term improvements in cervicogenic dizziness too. Awesome. Fascinating. What about um, traumatic brain injury? It's kind of like a, an area, it's a hot, it's a hot topic. Um, people are paying a, a lot more attention to it. And you, you I think you mentioned earlier that you're starting to work with a lot of those patients. What's, what's the literature show in regards to, to that aspect as well? So one of my mentors, his name is Scott Rosa, um, he's been heavily involved in um, being a pioneer kind of in this area. So he's working with one of the inventors of uh, Upright MRI, his name is Ray Demadian, and he's using Upright Imaging to assess things like cerebral spinal fluid flow after people have sustained neck injuries. So he did a study in 2011, um, and he looked at patients with things like multiple sclerosis, and they had a previous history of neck trauma, and they looked at changes in cerebral spinal fluid dynamics pre and post atlas orthogonal or upper cervical type of the adjustment. And some of the cases that he's shown have shown some promise for that are worth future study. The NUCA organization and the board that I'm a part of, the Upper Cervical Research Foundation, we published a 2015 study 
that looked at hemodynamics in migraine patients. And one of the things that we noticed is that when patients were showing some biomechanical abnormalities from a neck injury, they showed some altered venous drainage patterns, which goes along with a study by Pomshar, who studied venous drainage patterns in patients with TBI and found that patients with TBI had a higher rate of these venous drainage challenges. And now we're starting to see that um, upper cervical chiropractic can possibly play a role in improving some of these venous drainage patterns. So there's some cool stuff happening, and especially in that world with TBI. And I think it also might pair with some of the impact that we might have with neurodegenerative conditions and uh, autonomic nervous system issues. Well, that's exciting to see the literature starting to dive deeper into that stuff and anything that creates a larger evidence base for our to help guide our clinical care is always exciting. So thank you for sharing that. Um, another question I have for you is what do you see, um, you know, we kind of talked about dizziness and TBI in regards to, uh, you know, neck um, pathobiomechanics, but what are the things that you see that are a little um, farther reaching? Kind of like where you're like, hey, it's fascinating to me when I see these issues in the upper cervical spine that I see these types of problems and you wouldn't really think it would be connected, but somehow it is when you understand a neurology. Do you, do you see that at all? Yeah, so one of the things that um, that I've found and I actually presented some research on it uh, last year was on dysautonomia and uh, postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome. So, you know, as you know, like dysautonomia and POTS are relatively or actually very challenging issues to both treat and manage. And we had a couple of big successes with uh, using an upper cervical approach to dysautonomia. So there's not that much in the literature to support an upper cervical approach to it. But there are some uh, biological rationales, especially with the way that the atlas transverse processes can possibly impact the jugular veins of these patients, where if it's affecting the jugular vein, then it has the capacity to create a venous reflux and affect some of the dynamics of blood flow, which could affect something like dysautonomia. Interesting. Cool. Um... Yeah, this all just sounds so interesting to me. And this whole time that we've been talking, it just keeps ringing in my ear about all the different vestibular rehabilitation exercises we do and a common exercise that we do with our patients where we do gaze stability exercises and we're moving their neck in these different directions while we're stabilizing their eyes and their vestibular system. And I can't help to think about that connection between the neck and what you're doing as an upper cervical doctor. So I just want to know, what is the treatment like for you and what... When you have a patient come into your office, what do you usually do first, and what, what does that look like for you when they first come in? So when a patient comes into my office, we always start off by taking an in-depth health history. We want to know exactly you know, what led them to the way that they are right now, and you know, a history of trauma is usually a big tell that we're going to find some type of biomechanical issue with their cervical spine. And then we'll go through the process of taking um, our NUCA x-rays with them. So we'll take these upper cervical x-rays on the patient. And then, um, especially with a newfound love and appreciation for clinical neuroscience, we, we do a really thorough um, neurological exam, including um, VNG. And we also do um, balance testing. 
So once we have all this information, then this gives us an ability to monitor what's a patient's response to our upper cervical adjustment. So after we go get all these findings, we'll have the patient come back. We'll do a calculate a vector at which we're going to do the adjustment for that person. Then once we do the adjustment, we'll take our post-X-ray first to see, did we change the biomechanics? And once we confirm that we changed the biomechanics in a positive way, then we check all of our neurological findings again. So we'll check eye movements again. We'll check the balance again. And the expectation is all these things should show, start to show a sign of improvement that says this is something that we expect to respond towards our treatment plan and our care. And one of the unique features about being an upper cervical chiropractor is our goal is to actually adjust the patient as little as possible. So, you know, if we could adjust the patient once and that they can maintain that adjustment throughout their life, then that's really the goal for most upper cervical practitioners that are out there. And that also gives us a lot of room to really hone in on doing neurological rehabilitation once we know that their upper cervical biomechanics are stabilized. So, so you're combining that clinical neuroscience right away, right when they come in. Yeah, absolutely, especially from our I got to tell you, I I found that really interesting what you just said because one of the things that I find found interesting was that you're doing a biomechanical check, meaning like, are you like, hey, did I improve this person's biomechanics? Because you obviously want to create that uh, for your patients. But I got to say, I'm impressed the way you're doing a neurological recheck right away quickly because I think a lot of practitioners, especially what you see in manual practitioners, they'll only rely on the biomechanical for their assessment and the reassessment. And the assumption is that if you improve biomechanics, that you actually made the patient better, which then begs the question, can you change biomechanics and not have the person be better? So I've always been a fan of having a two-prong approach to your reassessment because you can change biomechanics and not have that be the best thing for your patients, essentially destabilize them in some way. So I, I am impressed with your, your method because you're at least taking uh, a more cautious approach, which I feel may be better for the patient outcome in regards to biomechanical and neurological reexamination style process. Yeah, and like I'll give you an example for something that I just saw this past week where um, we did our biomechanical assessment, we did our adjustment with them, and our post-X-ray showed that we got a pretty good correction on that patient, but we threw them onto um, our kinetosense, or I'm sorry, we, put, we threw them onto our, um, our balance test again, and we basically saw that their balance actually worsened after we did that adjustment. So what did that tell us? That tells us, okay, so biomechanically, they got better, but from a sensory standpoint, they actually got worse. So what we did was instead of leading with the adjustment on future visits, we actually did vestibular rehab with that patient first, did gaze stability, and then once their gaze was stabilized, we checked their balance again, the balance was better, then we started to do our biomechanical work with the upper cervical adjustment again, and then for that patient, it ended up improving their outcomes dramatically, whereas if we had only relied on the biomechanical aspect, we might have made that patient have to go through a prolonged recovery in order to get their um, sensory stability back. That's beautiful. Love it. Yeah. I mean, that just sounds like what we like to say a lot with our doctors who started applying this clinical neuroscience aspect of thing, the modern upper cervical doctor approach. Yeah, I mean, that's pretty neat.
having that full field to see both the biomechanics and the neurological integrity of that patient and making the treatment plan specific for them, I mean, that's just the future. Well, are, are you rare, Dr. Chung, in this? Or like, does that, do, do all NUCA-style docs think like you, or are you, because, are, I mean, I know some of your educational background, you're taking courses at the Carrick Institute, you, you speak, so you're obviously well-studied, and you educate other people, but do, does everybody operate like you, or, you know, some of them are more biomechanical, some are doing this hybrid biomechanical slash clinical neuroscience approach. Where, where's NUCA lie? So most people in NUCA are going to be focused on the biomechanics. They do have appreciation and value for the neurology. So I do know lots of NUCA practitioners that will refer patients to people to get things like functional neurological treatment or vestibular rehab when it comes to it. As far as a practitioner doing both, um, you know, there's not too many of us that are doing that, but there is interest amongst uh, especially younger upper cervical doctors that um, they want to be able to understand things from both a neurological standpoint and a biomechanical standpoint and be able to serve that patient um, in both ways if possible because there's, there's people that practice in rural areas where, you know, finding people that are really good at, you know, NUCA is hard to find because there's, you know, maybe 300 NUCA doctors around the country and then finding someone that's, you know, competent in clinical neuroscience can be challenging too because there's not a whole lot of those clinicians in the big scheme of practitioners. Mm -hmm. So being able to be trained in both gives the ability to serve populations that may not have access to either one of those resources. Okay, so what type of therapies do you use when you start to apply this neurological reintegration and this therapies with your upper cervical biomechanical approach? What are your go-tos, if you could say? So one of the things that I fell in love with was uh, joint position error testing. So we'll use uh, a laser on the patient's head, and then we'll have them focus on different targets, and then we'll retrain them to realize where the body's center is. So we'll use visual feedback using a head laser system to help retrain the person's um, sense of where they are in space. Um, I also like using gaze stability exercises. Um, we've been using more um, repetitive peripheral nerve stimulation in, um, in the last year or so. Um, so those are my go-to therapies, especially when the patient seems to be maintaining their biomechanical positions. You know, I always, I'm always impressed by how many people are using vestibular rehab as part of their treatment plans. I don't think a lot of people realize how important that reintegration of that is for our patients. Yeah, and I think there's so much more to vestibular rehab than what we know right now. I think it does so much more and has so many widespread effects. I'm just curious to see what else it's causing to happen that we might not know yet. Well, I mean, but I think it makes a lot of sense because you think about it, you go, all right, everybody talks about the visual system, how much information is coming in from visual system. I'm sure that's right. But at the same time, our vestibular system is firing off an incredible amount of information about how we're orientated in space, right? It's firing all the time. If you close your eyes and somebody moves your body around, you still have some sort of awareness about where your body's moving. So, and that information is being fed, in, fed into your brain, your nervous system, being integrated along with your visual system. And then, it, and then Dr. Chong, just like you said, joint position sense, along with information from our skin, our joints, our tendons, our ligaments, right? All gets put together and says, hey, you are here in the world. 
And from there, it's going to dictate how well you move or how poorly you move or whether you move at all, whether you have the perception of pain, right? And, and in fact, that feedback and it goes up to our nervous system and kicks off a cycle of things, which then feeds the nervous system again, is what helps us basically be alive. So, I mean, I My, totally get the importance of it, but I love hearing clinicians that are doing what you're doing, Dr. Chung. That's just beautiful to me. And it's like, it's one of my favorite things too, is when someone has like what seems like a strictly biomechanical type problem. So, you know, we have patients that'll come in with lower back pain and, you know, when you're a chiropractor and people have back pain, they want you to work on their back. And that's just not part of what I do with patients for the most part. So with some of these patients that are coming with persistent back pain, even though we've assessed their biomechanics and they have integrity in their biomechanics, one of the things that we'll do is we'll have them We'll assess the vestibular system and we'll have them do a couple of quick gay stability exercises. We'll put an optokinetic um, tape in front of them in one direction. And then we'll have them try to do the, ag the movement that was agitating them before. And just from doing like five or six head movements and a couple of optokinetic passes, like they'll bend down and touch their toes. I'm like, they're, and they're, they just have this completely befuddled look on their face. Like, how did you do that? What, what did you just do to me? Like you just move my eyes around and all of a sudden my back pain is gone. And then all of a sudden they have empowerment too, because then you say, all right, well do these exercises, you know, twice a day for the next two weeks, come check back with me in a couple of weeks and see if you're still having it. And you know, time after time, like people will come back and say, ever since you started having me do those exercises, I could work out at the gym better and it's not agitating my back anymore. So it's like when you look at the person as a whole, instead of being pigeonholed into one specific thing, then you can actually see the things that might drive the patient's improvement and give the patient their sense of responsibility that, hey, I, I can take control of my health again. Well, Dr. Chung, this is exactly why I invited you on the show, because I, I mean, I didn't know much about how Nucadocs operate, but when I learned that you had this very modern approach to it, I'm like, I, I want to learn more. Um, I'm very impressed by how you're putting things together, and I'm sure your patients are very grateful for how much you help them. Oh, thank you. I appreciate that. Um, hey, Dr. Chung, I think we're going to wrap this up. If people want to learn more about you or connect with you or maybe refer a patient to you or become a patient, where do they get a hold of you? So if you want to get a hold of me, I'm pretty active on social media. You can find me on Twitter at, at Dr. Jonathan Chung and Instagram at Dr. Jonathan Chung. You can find me on my blog. It's called Protect the Neck. So you go to protecttheneck.com and you can see some of my writings on these topics. And if you ever want to refer me a patient, you can go to chiropractickeystone.com and then all my information for my practice will be there. All right, Dr. Chung. Well, thank you so much for being on the show today. We really appreciated it, and we loved all the information we had today. Um, if you want to hear more from Talk Neuro to me, make sure you subscribe to our podcast. And Dr. Chung, I look forward to seeing you in the future. Thanks, Dr. Locker, and thanks, Dr. Garcia. Have a great day. Thanks, Dr. Chung. If you enjoyed this podcast or would like to make any suggestions for any future podcast topics, please visit the Contact Us page on caricinstitute.com.